Well, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church family. Lord, I thank you for the people that you gather together with us a week in and week out uh, from day to day. Lord, I thank you for uh, their faith and their trust in you and in your word. I thank you for their desire to hear the word and their willingness to uh, go in this verse-by-verse fashion that we do that's uh, somewhat different than what other churches do and maybe not the typical thing, but maybe a little bit longer sermons that they are willing to endure uh, just because they love you, just because they want to know more about you. Father, I would pray for those in our church that are hurting this morning, that uh, there are those who have had difficulties in the last week since we've seen them. Lord, you know what each of those difficulties are, whether they're health or financial or family issues. Lord, I pray that you would stand with them, that you would draw other believers alongside them to encourage them and to build them up. Father, for some people, they've had an amazing week. I pray that they would remember that every good and great gift comes from the Father above, that each gift that we have comes from you, Lord. We're thankful for that. Lord, we know that we're not uh, the only church in town that uh, gathered all over Cheyenne this morning and all over planet Earth are believers who seek to glorify you this morning, uh, that we remember every Sunday as Resurrection Sunday, that every Sunday we remember and meet together on this day because it was the day that our Lord raised. Uh, This morning, Lord, I want to pray for Meadowbrook Baptist Church. I'm thankful for them and for their uh, new pastor, Keith Miller, Lord, and pray that you would Uh, bless him and that church through the ministry that he does there. Uh, Father, I thank you for the missions that we get to be involved with, the people that we've sent out from this church. I think of Brian and Tammy Shear and the Lord serving alongside Brian, first in the military and then in church, and then to see you then send him out from this church to plant a church in his hometown where he grew up uh, amongst his relatives and his friends, and to see them uh, build and invest in that church and invest in a a tough drug addiction culture around them, uh, to be able to minister to people who are trying to come off of some uh, difficult drugs. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless that ministry, that you give Brian and Tammy the energy that it needs, but also the continued love uh, for the people around them. Lord, we thank you also for uh, other ministries in our own church, Lord. I thank you for our elders that are here uh, Sundays and Wednesdays. They're here for meetings and they're oftentimes meeting with other people, whether it's in the hospital or in their homes. Lord, they're available here after service. I thank you for uh, Pastor Tom and his leadership over that group right now, and just pray that you would uh, continue to grow them and continue to grow all of us, that many of us would find ourselves being qualified as elders, that in our room today there are future elders, Lord, that you would uh, put that desire in their heart. Uh, The scripture says it's a good thing, that they would desire the office of overseer. And so, Lord, I pray that you would put that good desire Uh, in the hearts of of the right people uh, that will be willing to serve in the same sacrificial way that you did. And then lastly this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open up Mark chapter 15 to us, that you would help us to see in the retelling of the death of Jesus Christ just how much it is you love us. Father, would you do this for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we are. Mark chapter 15. Uh, Mark chapter 15 uh, is a difficult passage. You know, we can kind of look back and see what we've been doing. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, raise your hand up in the air, and one of these gentlemen will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. Uh, I've got a couple over here on the right-hand side. Um, But uh, anyway, uh, Mark chapter 15, we've been following through this last week, really, of the life of Jesus 
from the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, uh, his teaching uh, in the temple. We looked at the Passover, his arrest and his crucifixion is what we're going to be looking at primarily today. And then next Sunday, we'll gather together and we will look at the resurrection of Jesus, of Christ, of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. Uh, for me, it's been kind of a special gift going through the Gospel of Mark like this to be able to bring this book to an end on Easter Sunday is kind of powerful, but also for me it's exciting because on Easter Sunday, that sermon will be me completing the whole Bible after 14 years, which is a long time for me to pay attention to one thing. So um, that's kind of exciting. Uh, but this passage of Scripture, uh, if you were to look at Mark 15, it's 47 verses, so we aren't going to be able to get into great detail about every single thing that happens here. Uh, there's a number of ways you can kind of look at this passage. You can uh, spend some time looking at the various characters involved, whether you want to look at Pilate or obviously Jesus or Bar Barabbas or uh, maybe the crowd that it seems to be so fickle and finicky to be able to turn from praising him. Uh, you can certainly look at the centurion who's going to stand at his cross at the end there. Uh, sometimes you can maybe look at the different statements that are said. We'll look at some of those things as well. Some powerful statements within here uh, where Jesus uh, confesses himself as the king of the Jews, uh, where the crowd cries out, crucify him. Certainly a powerful statement where Jesus on the cross is going to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another powerful statement in this passage. Uh, then there's the centurion when he sees Jesus uh, breathe his last breath. Um, he says, truly, this man is the son of God. Uh, each one of those statements is pretty powerful. Um, and I'm really going to try to focus on just telling the story to not spend too much time sermonizing on it. Uh, then when we get to that statement of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To spend just a little bit more time there. Uh, the question why is asked over and over and over again by everybody uh, in all kinds of circumstances and situations. Uh, but in this case, the answer to the question why is powerful for us as believers. Why had God forsaken his own son in this moment? Uh, for us, we'll see that it's a pretty powerful thing that God has done. So if you recall from last week, Jesus has already been betrayed and arrested in the garden. He's had a trial already before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. Uh, they accused him of claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus confessed to that by saying in verse 62 of chapter 14, I am, at which point uh, the high priest considered this blasphemy because if somebody claims to be the son of God, then by nature, they are claiming to be God. In the same way, the son of Sean is going to be fully human. The son of God will be fully God. And so they saw this as a blasphemous statement that Jesus will proclaim this about himself. And so they are going to condemn him. But they have this problem. They have no legal authority to put anybody to death. And so now they have to bring him before the Roman leadership, before the Roman rulers, so that the Romans can condemn him to death. But they now have to convince those Roman rulers, in this case, a man by the name of Pilate, that Jesus deserves death. And so they're going to do that here in verse 1. It says, Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, 
It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now again, we have this Roman leadership who has to ultimately make the decision. There's going to be all kinds of accusations brought against Jesus in this. Jesus is not going to respond to any of them except one. The only one he responds to is this question, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus here in Mark is going to say, it is as you say. Now in the gospel of John, you can see that Jesus is going to explain that in more detail, spiritual versus physical king. He's going to give a little bit further explanation what it means that he's king, but he is confessing to this charge against him that he is standing as the king of the Jews. Now that in and of itself is reason under Roman law to put somebody to death because they would see that as insurrection against Caesar, that they would see them as saying, we're king and not the Caesar. And so we have kind of this conflict now where Pilate has to do something about this, uh, but Pilate understands that this is all kind of a, 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 a game of jealousy and envy. Uh, from the leaders of the Jewish people. And so he's kind of in a pinch here. He has to figure out uh, what it is he's going to do. Again, uh, I like to point out just the two charges that Jesus has answered. He ignored all the accusations by the Sanhedrin until they said, one, are you the Christ, the Son of God? To which he said, I am. And then now this one, are you the King of the Jews? Again, ignoring all the accusations that were brought against him and just answering the one, the one that he really wants them to focus in on, are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say. He's in agreement with the thing that Pilate has now said here. So we continue on. Remember, though, that this has been a long night for Jesus. He's been up all night. He's been in a trial. He's been agonizing in prayer. He's been betrayed. He's been abandoned by his disciples. He's been spit on. He's been mocked. He's been whacked in the head, slapped in the face. And now they bring him in the morning to Pilate. So now he stands before Pilate, refusing to answer all but the one question. In verse 6 it says, Now at the feast he, that's Pilate, used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, and he handed him over to be crucified. So now Pilate thinks, okay, this isn't going great, but it's fine because every year during Passover, 
I will release one of the Jewish prisoners to make the people happy. They're having a party. They're having a festival. They'll think I'm joining in with them. So I always release one of their prisoners. So Pilate has this great plan. This is how I get out of this situation. I'm just going to bring Jesus before them and I'm going to say, hey, here's your king. Can I release him to you for the feast? Of course, the people were expecting this. They were hoping that somebody would be released. Uh, I love how it points out here that Pilate uh, is not a dumb man. He understood what was going on in verse 10. Uh, He realized that Jesus had been handed over to him because of envy. He realized that the chief priests and the scribes, the council, the leaders of the nation of Israel actually jealous of Jesus. They were envious of his popularity and his status among the people. Pilate recognized what's going on. He's not a foolish man in this sense. So he has this plan. If I bring him before the crowd, surely the crowd who loves Jesus is going to want him to be released. Well, he brings him before the crowd And the crowd instead begins to shout, crucify him. Pilate says, what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? But the crowd cries, crucify him. Now contrast these two people. Jesus, who lived a life of righteousness and holiness, performing miracles, healing the sick, feeding the poor, even to the point of resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. So he who brings life compared to Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist against Rome, who was known as a murderer. You have this comparison here in Pilate's mind, not understanding all the stuff that's going on in the background, not understanding that regardless of any other circumstance, that ultimately this was God's plan, for this to happen. He doesn't understand that he's fighting against God in this moment, that he's struggling against God's will in this particular situation. But he looks at this and he says, I've got this great guy here that everybody loves, and I've got a murderer. Surely if I bring these guys out, they're going to say, crucify the murderer, kill the murderer, murder the murderer. Like that's the thing that makes sense. But the crowd instead is easily stirred up by the chief priests the leaders of the people. And instead of asking for the murderer to be crucified, they ask for Jesus, the life-giving man, to be put to death. If you can understand how mob mentality works a little bit, understand when you get a crowd of people together, it doesn't take much to get the whole crowd kind of mimicking each other and doing the exact same thing. Sometimes not even everybody in the crowd understands what's happening. Uh, If you've ever been, uh, recently, uh, Doug took me to a uh, Christian hip-hop concert. I fit in so well. (laughs) But it was amazing to me as I'm watching this, and everybody in this room is bouncing up and down at exactly the same time, except for me. I had a full bladder. I wasn't going to bounce at all. But... Everybody else is bouncing up and down at exactly the same time. The whole crowd was mesmerized by the music, that the circumstances kind of overtook them. And you could recognize just by looking at people, sure, some of the people are used to this, but some of the people are just very conservative in nature like me until the music starts. 
and then a few people start kind of bouncing up and down over here, and then a few more over here, and then these two first like this, and then slowly they kind of even out to where they're bouncing in unison, and then the few people that are left not bouncing, they're like, well, everybody else is bouncing. Maybe I should bounce. This is, I believe, kind of how this crowd thing worked as the influential people, the chief priests, the people that they're used to following. We do what they say. They're our leaders. And it's the leaders who begin to weave their way through the crowd, telling the people to, send, to cry out, crucify him, give us Jesus, crucify him. And so those in the crowd start to chant, crucify him in just little pockets at first. And then more and more people start to cry out, crucify him. And then before long, I imagine there are some people in the crowd who don't even know who's being crucified. They just know everybody's yelling, crucify him. And so they start shouting with him, crucify him. And the whole crowd in unison begins to chant, crucify him before Jesus. And Jesus, can you imagine, the Savior of the universe came down to pay the price for that crowd's sins. And he's hearing those voices cry out, crucify him. I don't say this to make the people in the crowd look bad. I say this to help us understand in that circumstance, we probably would have joined the crowd. On that day, we would have been part of the choir. We would have just been shouting along. And I know deep down inside, each one of us wants to say that we're somehow better than everybody else. But we're not. They don't call it peer pressure for no reason. It's real, honest, sincere pressure. And you can find yourself, even as a mostly good person, being drawn away from wisdom, from good decisions, just because you're overwhelmed by the crowd. That's what we have here. The crowd begin crying out, crucify him, which makes me wonder if back in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus was coming into town, known as the triumphal entry of Jesus, if, if, if he was coming into town and they were singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, which means save now, save us now, God. Makes me wonder if somebody started the song, but everybody else just kind of joined in. And that maybe those who were crying out Hosanna as Jesus entered Jerusalem were probably some of the same ones who were crying out crucify him as he was led out of Jerusalem. You see how the crowd can kind of take control in a moment like that and overcome even the good conscience, even the good people, even those who are trying to be right in the way that they live. So Jesus now gets drawn out of the crowd. They're going to take him away to be crucified. It says in verse 16, the soldiers took him away into the palace. That is the praetorium. They called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. And so now, to make it worse, the Roman soldiers, who are supposed to lead Jesus away, they bring him from in front of the crowd into the palace before they lead him out to be crucified. But the soldiers all get together and decide, well, let's have a little fun with this guy. He calls himself king of the Jews? Well, let's dress him up like a king. So they put a purple robe on him, and they make a crown out of 
thorns. And so if you'd imagine taking a thorn bush and kind of wrapping it into a circle and then sticking it on Jesus' head. And then they begin to mock him and spit on him and beat him. They begin to bow before him and they all begin to shout and shout and they all call together. It says the whole cohort. So they gathered together all the people who were serving in the temple that day as soldiers. They call them all together and they all begin to shout out before him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again, this is all mockery to them. The humanity that has to be lost in that moment to see somebody who's on their way to be put to death and to mock that person in that moment. The loss of humanity that is there. That loss of humanity is important to remember because that's why Jesus is here. To respond to that. I would say it even differently. It's not the loss of humanity. It's the loss of God's creativity. That God who created them in His image, they have fallen so far that they think the right thing to do in this moment or the good thing or the fun thing to do in this moment is to mock a man on the way to his execution. And not just any man, but probably the one innocent man in the entire room, right? The only person who deserves no mockery in the entire room that day or in any room any day is the one that they choose to mock. And so they dress him up as a king and they pretend to bow down before him as they slap and spit and hit and chant, Hail, King of the Jews. It's almost shocking to read. It almost doesn't really even need a whole lot of commentary. If you can imagine yourself in these circumstances, sometimes uh, as Easter approaches, I'll, I'll re-watch some of the movies that show the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, different years, I do different ones, but uh, this year I re-watched one. It's on Netflix. It's just called The Gospel of Mark. And it's just somebody reading the Gospel of Mark, but they actually play out the scenes. So over and over on Friday while I was studying, I just kept restarting this section on chapter 15 there, but just kind of being able to visualize it. If you could see and visualize the bloodied Jesus being mocked by these soldiers, these Roman soldiers in that moment, and understand that God loves us enough pay the price for the sins of those people who've lost so much of themselves that they can mock a man on his way to execution. Verse 21 tells us briefly, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And so somebody else helps him carry his cross. It says in verse 22, then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated, place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with, with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews... They crucified two robbers with him, and one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also 
along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Uh, It's interesting In the Gospels, they don't go into great detail into what an actual crucifixion would have looked like. They don't spend a lot of time uh, on the pain or the torture of it all, but they kind of describe the scene around the crucifixion. Uh, The actual crucifixion is just described like this, they crucified him. Of course, we've seen the pictures, we understand what that looks like, that Jesus, who's already bloodied and bruised and bleeding because of the beatings and the mocking that he's taken at this point, was actually nailed to a wooden cross brought up and stood on end and then dropped down into this hole. And for me, uh, one of the reasons I struggled uh, with The Passion of the Christ, if you guys ever saw that movie, uh, as I was watching that movie, I was somewhat disassociated to what was happening on the screen, partially because going into it, there were people that told me, oh, there's some stuff in there that's not theologically right. There's some stuff in there that doesn't quite match up with Scripture. And so I'm going in there uh, with my pastoral, analytical, theological mind, watching this movie, taking mental notes of, oh, they got that wrong. Oh, they got that wrong. And then all of a sudden, when that cross falls into the hole and I see his whole body shake as he's hung there by those nails, all of a sudden it hit me and I'm like, ah, forget the theology. Look at the circumstance. Mark doesn't spend a whole lot of time at that. He describes a different kind of pain. He describes the pain of the creator God being put to death by his creation. He describes the pain of what was going on around him. First, they divide up his garments and they begin to cast lots. In other words, they're gambling to see who gets what from his clothing. They put a sign in mockery above him, the king of the Jews. A mockery not just of him, but of all the Jews. And in fact, other gospels you'll see uh, where where the, the priests and the scribes said, don't put that up there, put there. He calls himself the king of the Jews. He's got criminals on each side of him. People are passing by. It says hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads saying, hey, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Uh, Even the chief priests, those who are supposed to be the most religious people in all of the nation of Israel, were mocking a dying man. And they say these words, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Of course, they misunderstood the circumstances. He saved others, and he will not save himself so he could save more. Because that's just who he is. That's why he was here. He came for the purpose of dying. Mark chapter 10, it pointed that out clearly. Jesus just said, that's why I came, so that I could pay the ransom for others. It was his whole purpose in life. This is 9 a.m. in the morning. Remember, he's had the Passover dinner. He was arrested in the middle of night as he agonized in prayer all night long with these various trials and beatings. If you can imagine just how exhausted he is. If you've ever tried to do something hard or difficult after being up all night, but then imagine throw into that being beat up all night. 
And here he is hanging on the cross and they're verbally abusing him. And that goes on for hours. From 9 a.m. it says, then in verse 33 it says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from 9 a.m. till noon was the hurling of the abuse, three hours. Tacked to the cross, unable to defend himself, unable to do anything, or really the word isn't unable, the word is unwilling to. Of course, he is fully God. He certainly could have done those things. And then by noon, so if you can just think through a day, what that would be like from 9 a.m. to noon to be mocked all day. Some of you call it junior high, but just to go through this process. And by the time you get to noon, all of a sudden, darkness comes over the whole land. And it's going to be there for three hours. So now we take it up in verse 34. At the ninth hour, so now three hours later, 3 p.m., at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachini, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. So now it's the the ninth hour of the day. It's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. He's been on the cross since 9 a.m. Abuse, all of this difficulty. And he cries out in Aramaic. It's actually an Aramaic transliteration of the Hebrew. It was translated into Greek, which is given to us in English. So if I say it wrong, understand I don't care. (laughs) But he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatini. Put a little Italian roll on the end there. It sounds like you're saying it right. Which Mark is nice enough to translate for us. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words are almost a little shocking, aren't they? I mean, this is Jesus. My God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's a question implied there, but understand what's happening is more than just the question. It's actually Jesus reciting Scripture, maybe even singing a psalm. Psalm 22, if you don't mind, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. He's quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a powerful psalm as you read through it. Why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Jump forward with me to verse 7. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Do you see how 
this psalm is actually describing the death of Jesus Christ. In the same way that people wagged their heads and mocked Jesus while he was on the cross, this psalm predicts it prophetically. Jesus, recognizing himself in all of the scriptures, knew as he sang this psalm that it would draw people's attention back to it so that they could see the hand of God in this. Verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of dust. of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, these words here of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, have, why have you forsaken me? Yes, it's a question, but it's also a signal. It's a sign. It's a pointing to the Psalms, to the prophecies, where his crucifixion was predicted thousands of years before this. Jesus laying it all out so those who are watching, those chief priests, those scribes who had written down the very word of God, they would have recognized this as Psalm 22. They would have recognized this as God's word. And it should have, could have brought to mind the very images that they were witnessing and watching in this moment. The description of the crucifixion of Jesus. But the question is, still a real one. Why this method? Couldn't God have come up with a different method than this? Wasn't there another way? Remember when he was in the garden, Jesus said, Lord, if there is any other way, but not my will, yours be done. Well, there's a number of verses that can kind of point out how all of this works out. Uh, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it explains that that was always Jesus' goal. It was always the purpose of God that Jesus would be the ransom for many. That he literally would be the ransom, the money paid out to steal somebody or to purchase somebody who has been kidnapped or in bondage. And of course, we were in bondage and kidnapped by our own sin. Jesus became the ransom to pay for our sins. He was forsaken to pay for our sins, to be the ransom for the thing that was keeping us in bondage. Uh, Romans 5.8, it was while we were yet sinners that Christ loved, died for us. But it says this, it says it was the love of God for us. Why was Jesus forsaken? Because God loved us. Because he loved us. He was willing for Jesus to be forsaken in that moment. First uh, Peter 2.24 tells us it's so that we can live in righteousness that Jesus was crucified. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says that this was to bring us to God. This was to make a reconciliation between us as God, to lead us to God. Again, so it's all focused on us. Why was he forsaken? So that we could be forgiven. I think the simplest answer is in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God would reply back to Jesus to pay the price for our sins. That's why that happened. It was for us. It's an interesting thing. We think in terms of forgiveness and the grace of God, but we also have to recognize to a certain extent the character of God. Uh, To put it this way, we know that God is merciful. We know that God is just. Well, he reconciled his mercy and his justice at the cross. He brought the two of them together. He didn't reject his mercy. He didn't reject his justice. He accomplished both in that minute. I don't know if you've thought about how forgiveness works, but forgiveness always comes at a price. Either paid by the offender or paid by the victim. That's how forgiveness comes. Think about it. Let me, let me give you an illustration. I've got my iPad here. If I were to loan my iPad to you, and you were to take that iPad and you will take it wherever you're planning to go, and if you're like me, you sometimes don't think things through very well, maybe you stick it into the pocket of something that's not zipped, or like me, for some reason, I always carry it with my armpit like that so I can have my free, hands free to do other things. And sometimes, believe it or not, it just slips right out because it's thin and slick. And it falls and it hits the ground. So imagine I've loaned you my iPad and you're just carrying it to your car as you walk around the back end of your car, going around to your side. It kind of slips out from your grip, but you don't notice it. Falls, cracks the screen right into obviously a puddle of water right now because of all this terrible weather we've had the last couple days. It's laying there in the water, soaking up with water. You didn't see it yet. You get in your car, you back over it. Now it's in pieces. (laughs) You get to wherever you're going and you realize, where did I put that iPad? So you begin to retrace your steps. You find yourself all the way back at the church and you see it in pieces in a puddle of water in your parking space. Uh Uh-oh. My friendship with Sean is now broken. (laughs) Our relationship has been harmed because of my actions. Well, how does that relationship get fixed? There's two ways to do it. It comes through forgiveness, right? But on one hand, forgiveness could look like this. You go out, you buy a new iPad, you bring it back to me. You paid the price for your mistake in order to reconcile our relationship. But there's another way to do that as well. I could say, I forgive you. You don't have to buy me a new iPad, but understand that cost me the price of my previous iPad, plus a new iPad to replace it. Again, the reconciliation, the forgiveness came at a cost, either a cost paid by the one who brought the offense, by the sinner, if you would, or paid by the one who was the victim of the offense. Well, God brought the two things, justice and mercy, together in this moment. He demanded justice. Our sin must be paid for, but in his mercy, he paid for it himself. The wage of our sins was that there had to be a sacrifice. But he said, I will provide myself a sacrifice for your sins. 
And it's been that theme consistent all the way throughout Scripture. That in the grace of God, He paid the price for us. Justice, the price was paid. Mercy, it was paid by Him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in justice and mercy, God decided while we were yet sinners to reconcile the relationship for us, knowing that we couldn't do it ourselves, knowing that we didn't have the ability to do it ourselves. So yes, he was forsaken because of our sins, but he was also forsaken because of God's love. He was forsaken so that it could ransom us from our sins. He was forsaken so that we could later walk in righteousness. He was forsaken so that we could be reconciled with God, so that we could be brought back to God. That's why Jesus Christ was forsaken. So prophetically, he he points us to Psalm 22, but he also points us to the very nature of God who gave us salvation, forgiveness of sins, as a gift that he paid for. That's the definition of grace for us, to receive what we didn't deserve, paid by him who didn't deserve to pay the price. That's what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross. That's why he, in obedience to his Father, allowed himself to be forsaken, because as he cried out, if there's any other way, but your will be done surrendered himself in obedience to the Father, surrendered himself in love for us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The whole of the gospel is surrounded on this moment in history. It says next in verse 37, And Jesus cried, with a loud voice, a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now think about this for a moment now, just the supernatural things that are going on. From noon to 3 p.m., the land went dark. We don't know if it was an eclipse. We don't know what it was, but in that moment, the land went dark. And then in Mark, he also reports that at the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, the temple veil, the place that separated the people of God from God, the separation between the people and the Holy of Holies, the place where we couldn't go, the place that symbolically represents a picture of heaven. If you ever want to do that study sometimes, just look at the the way they've designed that holy place. And it has this tapestry all around it that's filled with pictures of angels all over it. It's kind of this beautiful purple picture with all these angels surrounding the holy seat of God. But in that moment, the veil separating us from God is torn top to bottom. It's almost like God from heaven reached down and tore the veil saying, you now have access to me because of the death of my son. And when he died, it says that the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now that centurion had no inkling of an understanding of what he was saying in that moment. 
Uh, he wouldn't, as a Roman, understand the Jewish nature of what it meant to be the Son of God. That, for him, as a Roman, would have been kind of a, a very simple idea. Pretty much anybody that was a great hero or a great man, they kind of ascribed this God-likeness to. So for him, it was probably a simple statement. He just saw how many people he's overseen the death and their crucifixion before and how they died. And then he saw how Jesus died and he said there was something different about this guy. There was something powerful about this moment in the way that he finally died in the way that the world around us was working. So he says this, but prophetically it's true. Truly this was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. There were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of, of uh, Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. So, as he dies, now a guy by the name of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea comes along. He is a prominent member of the council, the very people who voted to have Jesus put to death. He's a member of that group. What we find out in the Gospel of John in chapter 19 is that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. And he wasn't the only one, that there were others amongst the Pharisees and amongst, amongst the, the chief council who were also secretly followers of Jesus Christ, which we might look at that and say, oh, cowards, weaklings, stand up, be a man. Although I would wonder how many aspects of your life, how many areas of your life, whether it's at work or certain family members or friends, that around them you're kind of a secret disciple of Christ. We just don't get into the religious stuff. But a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. We're also told in the Gospel of John in chapter 9 and in chapter 12 that there were those that were secret disciples specifically because the chief elders had already decided if you follow and become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you would be kicked out of your synagogue. You would be unable to worship God with your friends and with your family. Like being kicked out of church for worshiping Jesus. So these were some people that were just secret disciples. They just kept it to themselves. Not saying that's the way you should be. I'm just saying that's the way he was. Well, he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. And then he's the one that ultimately is going to bury Jesus and place him in this tomb. We also understand that there's this group of women disciples uh, which I think is important to recognize as well, that uh, Christ didn't just die for men, he died for everyone. There was this group of, of female disciples who would follow him 
as he went from town to town. And even as he came into Jerusalem, it says there was a large group of women that were following after him. These were not secret disciples. They were there with him at the crucifixion. They would minister to him during his ministry. But they were watching all of this happen, so they knew where Jesus had been buried. And that'll become important when they go back to find him a couple of days later on Resurrection Sunday. These gals will go back to find him. So here we are now. We're one week from Easter. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's important to remember that the resurrection of Jesus Christ could only occur because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That both of these things work hand in hand. One paying the price for sin, the other showing God's power over death. The two of these things go hand in hand. And so I'm asking you to do the same thing I've been asking you the last couple weeks. Do yourself this favor. For the next week, read through Mark 16 as many times as you can. I would suggest at least once a day, just sit down and just read through Mark 16. It'll just take a couple of minutes. But as you read it, God will give you more and more things. And you might say, I'm not a great reader. Well, listen to it. There are people on the internet that have read it for you, because this is America. There are people out there who have read it for you. You can do what I do sometimes. So I'll read it some days, some days I listen to it. I try to do different translations, but each time I go through it, it begins to become more and more in focus. And then when we gather together next weekend, whether you come at the Saturday night service or the Sunday morning, the Lord will already be working on your heart to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's remember this as we go out. I'm going to pray and we'll have our closing song as we always do. But just remember this as we go out. This is how much God loves you. That he would allow his own son. He would forsake his own son. That he would be crucified to pay the price for our sins so we can be in right relationship with God, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that he can forgive us of our own sins. It's okay, and in fact, I would say it's, it's important that we personalize this and see it more as, than just a history lesson, that we recognize this is something that was done for us. Amen? Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I know for me personally that I'm easily distracted I'm very forgetful. Oh Lord, I need these moments where you remind me of the sin that you've forgiven me of. Not so I can wallow in my past sins and past failures, but so I can celebrate the joy of the forgiveness that I've received. Lord, I know that my forgiveness was free to me, but it was so costly to you. Lord, I thank you. We thank you. And we love you because you first loved us. And we worship you as we go out today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand together and worship.